Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah, release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. You're thinking about eating leftovers that you're not really hungry for, but it sounds good and it's not worth the trade-off of the you know decreased quality of sleep. So it helps people make those mindful decisions, which then actually lead to sustainable habits. Because when we can be empowered with kind of, I know when to do this versus that, then we can create a lifestyle routine we can actually stick to. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I am joined with Kara Collier, who is the founder and VP of Health at NutriSense. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. Excited to be here. Me too. You're also a dietitian. I want to add that because we need to... Uh, you're like a nutrient nerd. Is that a fair... <laughs> I like that. That's actually the first time I've ever heard that one. But yeah, nutrient nerd is good. I would consider myself a nutrient nerd. Well, I'm so excited that we were connected because I had asked a friend of mine, I wanted to explore using a continuous glucose monitor to see how my body responded to different foods. And I wanted to really understand insulin and all that glucose and all that kind of stuff just to deepen my knowledge of my relationship to my body and really understand too, I, I couldn't believe when I was wearing it how my body responded to like exercise, which was really cool, but knowing that it was normal or how it responded to sweet potatoes, actually, that one really threw me off. That was the only time that I saw a spike out of the zone. And I was like, what? This is a sweet potato, aptly named, I suppose. But yeah, it it, it was such an incredible experience and I'm going to keep doing it probably once every quarter just so I can get, it's so accountable. It's ridiculous actually how accountable it is. 
Yeah, absolutely. The data is so powerful. And that's what people don't realize. At first, you you know, you know it's going to be a discovery tool. You're learning things that you could never know otherwise. But then eventually it turns into a behavior change tool. It's like the ultimate accountability buddy. Yeah. And for you listening, like I asked Kara to be on here because I learned so much through this process. And I think it's so important that we understand the relationship between food, our mood, how glucose works, what is metabolic health. And we've not really gotten into metabolic health as a sort of concept on the show. And, you know, I am very much fascinated about relationship, but also how things like our environment and the nutrients we're taking in are affecting our behavior and our emotions and then how we relate to other people. You know, that idea of like hangry, that I'm sure hangry has caused a few divorces in our time. So if we can dive deeper into this subject, I think it's really helpful for all of you listening too, just to deepen your understanding and awareness and wisdom about your body. So maybe we can start off with metabolic health, like most people probably, other than metabolism, don't usually hear the word my, metabolic, maybe metabolic syndrome. But other than that, there's not really a deep, no one walks us through it. So yeah, maybe we could start there. Yeah. And it's becoming a bit of a buzz term, you know, metabolic health, insulin, insulin resistance. But when I do ask people, I don't think most people really understand it. So it's a great place to start. And as you're mentioning, how we feel physically and how optimally our body is functioning is going to affect every aspect of our life, right? It's going to affect how well we're able to perform at work and our day-to-day -day, and in our relationships. And if you think about metabolic health at the most basic term, it essentially means like what is the state of health of our metabolism? And so then, you know, the next question is what is metabolism? And essentially, that is just all of the processes to turn food into energy. And so that means digesting, absorbing our food, and then turning it into usable energy, storing it correctly if we don't need it right away, excreting um, waste products from that energy, and then doing that whole cycle over and over, tapping into stored energy sources. So there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to metabolism and metabolic health, and that's why it's so complex and complicated, but it's that whole interwoven system. And a good analogy for people to think through like what is metabolic health is comparing it to sort of like a, a city transportation system. So think of something like New York City and all of the different routes and processes and pieces of the puzzle that go into making a robust transportation system. So, you know, you have the subway system, you have cars, you have taxis, you have sidewalks, you have bike lanes. And the goal there is to get everybody where they need to be in the most efficient way possible without creating a bunch of traffic jams and inconveniences and inefficiencies. And that's kind of what a robust metabolic health is, is, you know, a well-oiled transportation system where things get where they need to be and they end up in the right place and they end up there in the most efficient process possible. Whereas, you know, we can see that there's very easily a lot of different opportunities for that system to work not quite as well. So if you think about having more cars or more people in an area than that city was built for, um, so maybe a city like Austin or all of these cities that are kind of blowing up, that's sort of the idea of almost like overnutrition. Now we're getting these unnecessary traffic jams, things were just not built for this much input. 
or potentially, you know, you never put any sort of repair system into your transportation system. You never invest in kind of the upkeep. Then we're going to end up with potholes and broken road systems and, you know, crossed wires and all the things that come with that, which is also going to lead to traffic jams or inefficient systems. So that's kind of what happens when our metabolic system or metabolic health starts to get a little dysfunctional or less than optimal is we have this these traffic jams, essentially. And that's why if we really want to optimize our metabolic health, that has such a ripple effect on everything else. You know, we may have heard people say that kind of the root of wellness and the root of health overall is a robust metabolic health, robust metabolic system, you know, avoiding insulin resistance. And that's because when we see that system become a little dysfunctional, it affects every aspect of our body. You know, it's affecting every organ system. It's affecting how we transport energy. It's going to affect our weight regulation. It's going to affect how we feel, you know, our day-to-day energy levels, but then also that kind of long-term chronic disease development. So when we even hear terms like metabolic flexibility, I remember hearing that term. What does that mean? Yeah. So another analogy for metabolic flexibility, if you think about, so glucose and fat or ketones, which is, could be, you know, another derivative of fat are our primary energy sources. So you can think of those as like the fuel system, you know, powering all the different cars and trains within the transportation system. And then metabolic efficiency is being able to pick which fuel system is the best for that situation. So the best example would be like a hybrid car. We can tap into quick energy if we need to gun it really quickly and speed up. We're going to use gasoline, and that's more like our glucose. Whereas if we're just cruising and coasting, then we can rely more on fats as energy. And being metabolically flexible is that ability to switch between fuel sources appropriately, depending on kind of what the situation demands. And that switching is something we're and like enabled to do inherently, but we lose it through all our various, you know, lifestyle changes. So that's really like what the body is naturally should be able to do is quickly fuel switch and kind of maintain that optimal efficiency, but we lose it a lot along the way. And so that's really the goal that we want to get to. And typically, most people are not very efficient to using fat because we're kind of running on that short-term glucose energy source most of the time. So most Americans kind of need to learn how to get a little bit more adaptive to utilizing fat as an energy source. But you can also go the other extreme as if you if you never then rely on carbohydrates, then you might lose that flexibility towards glucose as a fuel source as well. So I really think about it more as kind of that goal is that optimal switching, being really efficient with our energy. Yeah, it's interesting because when we explore different diet types and people talk about ketosis or going keto, it's using that ketones. It's using the ketones in order to use energy, produce energy. Is it just me or is it true, I'm just guessing, that the majority of people in places like the United States and Canada and probably Mexico too, actually, because there's a lot of sugar in the food in Mexico and like the processed stuff at stores too. I'm curious, do we tend to be a very carbohydrate-rich culture? Yeah, absolutely. Majority, and it's estimated that 93% of the U.S. population at least is not metabolically optimal, meaning that- 90 what? 
93%, which is That's a staggering good. number, of course. Yeah, not That's good really at all. So 7% of the U.S. population is metabolically healthy. Yeah, would be considered metabolically optimal. So the official diagnosis Damn. of metabolic syndrome is kind of five factors that you think about, like all the key components of that transportation system. So it's glucose. There are two different lipid components to that. Waist circumference was just kind of an idea of that adipose tissue on your stomach and then blood pressure. And so that statistic is that only 7% of people have all five of those metrics in an ideal range. So that, you know, comes with some imperfections, but it's a pretty good yeah. gauge that most of us are not metabolically healthy. Do they include insulin in that? They don't. That's fascinating. Because like, yeah, you think about it, that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> based on at least my understanding of cardiovascular health and indicators of potentially poor cardiovascular outcomes insulin seems to be sort of the best indicator along with triglyceride to HDL ratio. But otherwise, like a lot of the data on LDL, I know small particle, large particle, all that kind of stuff. It's really fascinating because the science is not nailed on those things. But insulin seems to be pretty resolved, you know, like as a marker. Yeah. And insulin is, we do know now that that is a great metric to look at. Unfortunately, it's still not routine care at all to be getting fasting insulin levels or any sort of insulin levels taken. So even though the research at this point is very conclusive that uh, measuring insulin is an important thing to be doing and will tell us a lot about our health, as we know, kind of like traditional healthcare system is very lagging in regards to that. So it still would be very unusual for me to even see an insulin level for a patient or for an individual. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to ask for it and try to push for it. And you can also pay out of pocket if you know you can't get your physician to order it for you or cover it for you. But we do know that, yeah, insulin is a really important component of it. And if you think about, again, like the transportation system, insulin is essentially like the master traffic regulator. So insulin is a hormone and all hormones, their primary job is to communicate. You know, their, their role is to say that things need to do certain things, communicating between organ systems, communicating between different parts of the body. And what insulin tries to communicate is how to regulate all of that energy, so it's sort of like, you know, it's the traffic signals, it's the stop signs, it's the exits. And if those aren't working properly, you know, we can imagine that miscommunication is sort of the root of all problems probably across the board. So when we have that miscommunication internally, which is essentially insulin resistance, then nothing works as it's supposed to. How does that begin? Like if, you know, I'm guessing as we're younger, especially if we are fit or have like lower body fat, that our body is able, if we're doing lots of working out, we're able to use those sugars. We're able to use those carbohydrates. And over time, does our body become less efficient at doing that? Slash, we definitely do generally become more sedentary as we age. What is the sort of cascade that occurs? Because I'm sure for a lot of you listening, we love our sourdough, we love croissants, we like candy, we like whatever we like, especially because those things are all so freaking addictive too. Like sugar is like dopamine hits central. So 
yeah, what is the process look like where all of a sudden there's a breakdown and how does insulin relate to that? Yeah. So it takes decades and that's almost the beautiful part about it. Like all of these chronic conditions, insulin resistance that, you know, it's related to insulin resistance, like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease. They take decades to develop. That's why they're chronic. So it's kind of these slow insults over and over that happen that eventually lead to this breakdown in communication to the level that things are no longer functioning. And it's also multifactorial. So I always tell people, if you ever hear like a simplistic answer, like this thing causes insulin resistance or like this is the one thing you need to do, it's overly simplistic because the system is complicated, just like a transportation system is complicated. So there are many factors that can lead to this development over time. And essentially what tends to happen first is that um, it's kind of like the boy who cries wolf. First, you tend to get higher insulin levels, but still maintain insulin sensitivity, meaning that your body responds to the communication that insulin is trying to tell you, but it requires like twice the amount of insulin to have that same signal actually resonate with the cells. And so it's kind of like at first insulin is like, you're not doing the thing that I, you said you should do. And so I'm going to do it twice as much. You know, I'm going to pump out twice the amount of insulin in order to reach that signal. And then the body does it. And then eventually, after those insulin levels have been rising and rising, and if we don't change anything, then what we see is those cells just kind of become numb to that insulin signal. So eventually it stops responding at all. So now we have high levels of insulin, but really no response to what insulin is trying to get the body to do. So that's why tracking those insulin levels, especially fasted insulin levels, can tell us a lot as you know, we start to see that fasted level increase, but then eventually you know, it stops responding. And that's when we say we're no longer insulin sensitive. And what can cause that is a lot of factors, as we mentioned. So a lot of it has to do with our diet, our lifestyle. So over-consuming in general. So if we overeat, then we tend to accumulate fat, especially in our organs, that visceral fat. And that tends to muddy that signal, that insulin sensitivity. Same with sedentary behaviors, partially because it can lead to that development of visceral fat as well. But also we know that skeletal muscle or having kind of a robust lean body mass helps protect us against some of these effects. So if we're sedentary, if we're not doing any sort of resistance training, then we no longer have that kind of safeguard to keep our insulin sensitivity and then we know things like environmental toxins, so things like smoking, air pollution, those kind of things can also play a role. Things like poor sleep, lots of stress levels. So if we're in under chronic stress, then we have that constant hum of cortisol, which is constantly raising our glucose levels, which is constantly stimulating some insulin. So a lot of these lifestyle factors that are kind of the pillars of what we know to be important, you know, diet, movement, stress management, prioritizing sleep are the same kind of things that can lead to that breakdown in communication. Well, we live in this world where it is essentially go, 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 constant, especially if that's not just work-related. The fact that we're maybe watching the news or constantly consuming social media, especially stuff that is emotionally triggering, 
that we're going to release cortisol and then we're in a high stress state. We might be working more lots. Maybe that's not optional. I get that. And then because we are trying to pay for all these things with exorbitant costs. And so there's like the very realities to life, of course, but then that perpetuates no movement, which perpetuates visceral fat accumulation. And that cortisol state eventually, because that releases the glucose because you're releasing glucose to deal with the stressor, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of that acute stress response that our body is built for. You know, it's like a stressor, we need some energy, and then it's supposed to go away after we've dealt with the stressor. But the problem is with our modern day stressors, we don't typically need extra energy to deal with them and they don't go away as fast as they're supposed to. You actually to. need to shut your phone off and yeah. like a, to think like a tweet will re- release the same cortisol that a tiger did or, you know, whatever, where there was like a true threat to life or the need for movement whatever it was. That's so interesting about sort of the history of the archaic nature of our nervous system response, which obviously serves us in an incredible way. And it hasn't adapted to the many stressors that are just, you know, emotional in our lives, not physical threats necessarily. So yeah, when I think about all of these different factors that we live in a culture that really is designed, maybe not on purpose, that's a whole other conversation to destroy our metabolic health like that. Yeah. It's not surprising to me at all that we're we're in a place where the statistics are so grim because as you're saying, it's the perfect storm of our body's natural physiology and the way we were evolved to behave and the different processes we have are built for a completely different system than our modern environment. You know, with the modern environment has just changed so much faster than our physiology has. So we have this mismatch. And then we're also in this perfect environment of not just stress and go, 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 and that stress response is misaligned, but we're also this perfect environment where we have unlimited access to hyper palatable food. We have unlimited ability to be really lazy if we want to be. And the truth is our default state is to do the path of least resistance. You know, that's what our body wants. It wants the calorically dense, satisfying food because that's you know, evolutionarily was what would fatten us up because we wanted to make sure that we had enough food. And then it was don't expend energy if you don't need to, which right now we really don't need to if we don't want to. You know, we don't even have to like walk up to turn off the TV anymore. Like everything can be done from the couch on our phone. Yeah. I remember having to get up and change the channel. You don't even have to get up to turn the light off. Yeah. (laughs) Could do everything from your phone now. So We're in an environment that is really a mismatch for our physiology. And then not only that, but the existing system, you know, the existing healthcare system isn't really helping that either. And so there are a lot of factors kind of working against us, which is why it's really important for each individual to understand that they actually are in control of this, but it takes dedication and it takes hard work, but it's extremely possible. You just have to be able to be aware of all of these factors and then kind of create a plan that's more aligned with maybe what your body actually needs and is designed for, and then find something that like is sustainable for you and will actually work for you so that you aren't kind of a reaction to your environment. You are actually in control of it. Yeah. When I think about all the different factors that impact how we eat, why we eat, whether that's 
emotional trauma or physical traumas that cause us to, you know, consume foods that soothe us. Maybe we learn that as a kid, especially sugar, high sugar foods. And then you have other factors like food access, you have food awareness. And if we're watching how, let's say, our parents ate or the people around us, there was not a conversation about metabolic flexibility or metabolic health. I heard the word metabolism, like that skinny guy's got great metabolism, you know, but there's such a lack. I mean, we talk about this before on the podcast that we don't teach relationships, we don't teach nutrition, and we don't teach finance. And those are actually the three things that will have the greatest impact on your life and your health and your longevity and your vitality. And to think that that most of us wait till we have to learn this stuff. And and then we're like, oh, I need to learn why I should eat organic if I can or eat more like, because before we got our foods from our neighbor who had a farm or we got them from our garden. I remember reading something that like 50% of the US's food came from gardens in the second world war because they started, I think they were calling them victory gardens. And I'm a Canadian, so hey, way to go on US history. But what now I think it's like 1%. It's like less than that maybe. And it seems to me like we're figuring it out because the farmer's markets are picking up. I'm curious. I, I could be in an echo chamber, but I do sense also this great desire, this conversation that I'm seeing online of people who are like, I want to move to a farm. I want a commune. I want to get a garden going. I want to do this because there is, our bodies are like, give me nutrients. You know, and with glyphosate destroying the soil, which also ruins the nutrient density of the food and blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, I could go on the system. Yeah, there, there are a lot of problems within the system, but there is, I think there's a growing demand. Um, it's still, you know, minority of people, but I am super optimistic about just what I'm seeing from people in general of how motivated some people are to be in control of their health, to be an advocate for what they think is best, to push for these, you know, outcomes that they actually want, to create and craft this life that is maybe more aligned to what we actually need and what humans want and desire and what fuels us. So I'm seeing this. I think it's growing and I think it's really exciting. You know, I'm, I'm very optimistic. And that's, I started my career, you know, as a dietitian in traditional healthcare. It was very valuable exposure and experience, but of course ran into many frustrating roadblocks there. And so now kind of working more in the consumer space, I'm just very optimistic and inspired and motivated by the individuals out there who are demanding that they have more information and they're more empowered and taking control of health themselves rather than kind of letting it happen to them. So I think there's kind of a positive page turning. Yeah, it seems like it. It seems like humanity, at least, you know, you look at the health of the United States and Canada too, but especially the United States, and you're like, we are in a state of emergency. Like it is the level of obesity and even now the that there is a shaming of having a conversation about fat and the experience of putting on weight on your body you know and i really think that we need to keep having this conversation because it's important it's important to be able to learn about what foods do us good like i think about the explosion of the whole 30 as a diet which really the whole essence of that quote unquote diet was to eat foods that were whole, like just eat foods that came as you're eating them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of 
part of the problem sometimes is putting a diet label on things. But I also agree that the pendulum tends to swing in extremes, as we know, on all things, not just in nutrition and health. But we are seeing this epidemic of obesity, and we know that obesity is an independent risk factor for just about every negative health outcome. Like that is a fact. But then there, the pendulum kind of started to swing in the opposite direction of, you know, we can't talk about obesity, fat shaming, health at every size which has some validity to it, but it was blown out of proportion, in my opinion, and taken incorrectly. Just like you were saying, there's an element of food trauma and emotional eating and you know food dysregulation that is part of nutrition and eating. And a lot of people have an unhealthy relationship with food. And so part of that is that we we shouldn't fat shame, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't make being a healthy weight the optimal goal. It's about how do we talk about that and how do we achieve that? It's kind of, you know, the devil is in the details, but it's important to not just completely disregard talking about weight and aiming for a healthy weight just because there's this other issue, you know, going over it and ignoring it is not the solution either. And so there's there's some important nuance. And that's actually part of what we have found to be really helpful to track things that aren't weight sometimes. Like if you have a history of being overweight, then most likely I can guarantee there is some issue, you know, some disordered eating and some emotional eating involved, that's very common. And so kind of an unhealthy relationship with food, these kind of binge and restrict cycles. I see that a lot. Yeah, it's, and it is a real issue, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still be working towards weight loss for those individuals. It's just adjusting your approach. And that's where we see kind of focusing on a different metric, whether that's glucose or whether that's your fast insulin level or whether it's just being able to walk up, you know, a flight of stairs. Maybe it's a specific goal you want to achieve and less energy on the actual number on the scale that can help remove some of that emotional aspect of it because sometimes we have to dissociate between like the the body image pressure or like obsessing over the number on the scale that fluctuates by a million different things and can lead to frustration and you know yo-yo dieting so sometimes we really have to find that more sustainable approach and identify some of that like intrinsic why why is it that you want to lose weight? If we keep asking why five times, you know, eventually we usually get to a root why, you know, and typically for people, it's that they want to be healthy and play with their grandkids, or they don't want to die from diabetes complications at 60, like their dad did. You know, your why is going to be much more motivating to keep front and center than having that kind of like weight loss goal that you keep trying to achieve and then regaining and going back and forth. Yeah, I think often what is missing in the conversation about weight, obesity is because the message that's sent, as you said, is just don't talk about it because it will cause people emotional pain to hear that obesity is a thing, which we live in this culture right now where I think it's God Saudi says we murder truth for feelings and not talking about the thing doesn't make the thing not exist. And this is what we do in families and have to learn coping mechanisms. So like when we can talk about the thing, we can then develop compassion for where the thing comes from. 
And that's what's important, as you said, like understanding, is it emotional eating? Did you learn it as a kid? Is it after a trauma? Is it an addiction to sugar? It, you know, whatever it might be, but then we can deal with it and then we can rectify and also probably get to the core thing that lives below. Because when you remove the addiction, of course, what's brought forward is the suffering. And one thing that I found really fascinating about, so I wore, for you listening, I wore the continuous glucose monitor for two months, but in separate months, I took a couple weeks between, you're supposed to take a couple weeks between each time you wear it, right? Or sorry, you switch arms, you switch arms. Yeah, it kind of depends on how you're using it. Some people wear will switch arms and wear them back to back, and some people will kind of take a more periodic approach. It, it kind of depends. Yeah, so I switched, that's right, I switched arms, then took a break, and then went back. And it was pretty, I got to say, it was pretty mind altering, made me, I had to log, I didn't have to, but I chose to log my food. And the reason I really loved NutriSense is because there's a dietitian and mine was Stephanie and she was, shout out to Stephanie and she was friggin' epic, would look at my food log and then my glucose response and then would give me tips about how to eat differently, like different order. I didn't know about that, by the way. That was like, I ate a sweet potato with grass-fed steak and salad, but I was driving and I was in a rush to get somewhere. So I was pounding the sweet potato and then eating the steak. And then I think it was broccolini or something. And when I got to the place, I ran my glucose and I'm like, oh Lord, that went above the upper limit. And uh, Stephanie was like, oh yeah, if you just ate the steak first, that likely wouldn't happen. Why don't you try that next time? And sure enough, next time I did that and it was better. So maybe we could talk about what a glucose monitor is. I know that the main difference with NutriSense is there is a dietitian tracking it, but you could speak more to that because that's, I mean, of course, why you founded it. And for you listening, this was something that I found so helpful to, like, they didn't pay me to do this. I was like, I want to try this out. I want to see how it affects the way that I eat and the way that I think about food. Because I did emotionally eat as a kid and certainly as an adult. And I noticed it was causing me to put on weight. And then I would, I'm very much like I was do the thing and then do the extreme and cut and do all that. And I'm like, well, I'm so good at maintaining my body at 15 pounds overweight. Why not just maintain it at the actual healthy weight? So, all right, let's get into it. What is a glucose monitor? And we could talk more. Yeah. So basics first, you know, so it stands for CGM is continuous glucose monitor. It's exactly what it sounds like. So it's this small device you put on the back of your arm and you put it on at home. Everybody's first question they always ask is, does it hurt? And it doesn't. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I was surprised. It's surprisingly painless. Yeah. I looked at it and I was like, wait, what? I'm going to punch that into my tricep area. And sure, I didn't even feel it a couple times. One time I felt it. But the other times I didn't even feel it. Yeah, it's it's pretty painless. And it looks like, I describe it as kind of like an easy button. So it comes in kind of this contraption. You push the button and then it's on the back of your arm. And it lasts for 14 days. So it stays there the full 14 days. And it's just kind of stuck with a little like adhesive similar to kind of like a Band-Aid adhesive. And then what that's actually doing, so the technology is there's this small microfilament that goes just below the surface of the skin so there is a needle to insert it, but the needle doesn't stay in your arm. It's just kind of inserting this tiny microfilament, which is why while it's on for that two weeks, it's really painless. You know, you can sleep on it, you can do all your regular activities on it, and you're not going to notice it at all. 
And what it's measuring underneath the skin is your the glucose levels in your interstitial fluid. So that's actually the fluid in between your cells. So it's not even the depth of your blood vessels, which is why, you know, it can be really shallow and super painless. And it's measuring that continuously. So every five minutes, it's picking up a glucose measurement. And so then you use the app on your phone and you just kind of scan it over that device and you can pull up to the last eight hours of data. So as long as you're scanning every eight hours, you're going to get that continuous 24 hours of glucose data, which is really kind of a novel concept in tracking. We know there aren't a lot of things that we get this continuous nature of, you know, a viewpoint of. And that's unique in the sense that, you know, you think about a photo and that's a snapshot in time. So that's like our fasted glucose level or a hemoglobin A1C. And this kind of gives us some information. It's like what is happening right then, right now. But then that movie picture tells us so much more than a photo could ever say. So it's telling you exactly how your glucose is fluctuating, how it's changing from day to day, what's happening while you're sleeping. So it's giving just a much more robust amount of information to help us figure out insights way, way quicker than we could with those snapshots. So a lot of people tend to kind of prick their finger with those like glucose meters or glucometer that you can get over the counter. Obviously, that's a little bit more painful because you have to draw a little drop of blood and then check it. But with that, it's, you know, it's just that little snapshot in time. So with this, it's about like 2,000 blood drops of what you can get in two weeks. So you're getting this kind of movie stream. And then um, on the NutriSense experience, as you mentioned, you get assigned a one-on-one dietitian and they message you through the app. So it's kind of this async texting nature. It's supposed to be very kind of casual and light and accessible. It definitely is. Yeah, we want people to be able to kind of ask questions when they come up. And the main reason that we did that, you know, of course, I'm a dietitian by trade. So going into this, I really understood the power of that human side of things. But we really didn't want this to be just like a data software program. You know, we didn't want it just to be access to the numbers and then you're kind of on your own. We really wanted it to be more um, that we're there to kind of help you on this journey and what we've learned is that both the dietitians are more powerful with data and then the data is more powerful with dietitians. So there's this really beautiful sweet spot between combining the two things to help people understand the nuances in their you know, personal metabolic health and really make changes that matter and kind of stick to it. So some people use the dietitian a lot. You know, they message them all I day, every day. I did early on for sure because I had so many questions. Like, what does this mean? What does that mean? Why did this? Because I remember I did a HIIT workout and my glucose went to like, I don't know, 158 or something. And Stephanie was like, no, that's totally normal. That's you leaned into it because you needed it. You know, whatever the answer was. But I learned so much. I had no idea. Even like eating, I remember I crushed a, a fairly large ribeye with a friend and that night, my glucose was like kind of up and down and not as low as normal. And I didn't sleep that great. And Stephanie was like, I had logged it. And she was like, yeah, when you eat a really rich meal like that, especially later, it can impact your sleep. And here's why. I was like, wow, this is so interesting. 
Yeah. So they'll, as you're mentioning, you know, the dietitians will proactively kind of pick out some interesting pieces and let you know kind of where to go with it, what that information might mean. So that even if you don't have a lot of questions, they're kind of helping you digest it. Because the last thing we wanted to do was for someone to look at the numbers and, you know, maybe your sweet potato example, you might have taken away from that I guess I should never eat sweet potatoes again. And maybe sweet potatoes are your favorite food in the whole world. And now suddenly you feel deprived and sad. And that is not what we wanted people to walk away with. So we wanted to make sure that a lot of the times we can work with what's happening. There's a lot more flexibility to the approaches than people realize. You know, a common misconception is that people will think by tracking this information, they're going to walk away with a more restrictive diet. But typically, they actually walk away with a more flexible approach to eating. But then you start to learn these kind of hacks that work. You learn your unique variability. So some people might not respond to sweet potatoes at all, where you had a higher response. There's just these unique differences that we see all the time. So weird. It is so weird. That was one of the most surprising things when we first started. You know, we started almost four years ago, and there was very, very little continuous glucose data for non-diabetics out there in the world. So it was kind of like the Wild West when we first started. And what was really insightful was how much people differ. You know, both people could be healthy, you know, metabolically sound, but they respond completely differently to the same exact food. Even couples, we have a lot of couples who do it together and they'll have totally different responses to the same meals. And what we're learning more and more is that, you know, there's this personalized element. It's probably a combination of genetics, epigenetics, you know, our gender, our lifestyle, the things we've been influenced by that result in kind of these unique responses to different foods and not just glucose, you know, kind of see this across the board. But that's one of the big insights, too, is really kind of figuring out those unique things about yourself and the different situations. And then it's about mindfulness. So Sometimes, you know, you might know now that if you have that really rich meal at night, that it's going to disrupt your sleep quality, which is then going to lead to higher glucose values the next day and maybe overnight. And there's some trade-offs there. So then next time you can be geared with that information to make mindful decisions where it might be worth it at one point because you're out at a late dinner with friends and you're going to indulge because it's an epic meal and you're socializing and it's a total totally worthwhile trade-off. But then there might be some times where you're kind of just like watching a movie on the couch and you're thinking about eating leftovers that you're not really hungry for, but it sounds good. And it's not worth the trade-off of the, you know, decreased quality of sleep. So it helps people make those mindful decisions, which then actually lead to sustainable habits. Because when we can be empowered with kind of I know when to do this versus that, then we can create a lifestyle routine we can actually stick to. Because not only is it meaningful, because we know this works or this doesn't work, but now it's actually realistic because you can kind of be more flexible rather than being like, I have to follow this diet and do this thing all the time. Instead, you're kind of geared with that little bit of flexibility that life just requires anyway. How does that like when I'm eating and you see that response, like that glucose response, what is that? Like, what is that correlation? And then how might I notice as I'm tracking those things, how food does impact our mood, our energy, and like what I was talking about, exercise. But I'm curious, yeah, what is the, 
because I did talk about the impact on sleep and exercise, but what about mood? Yeah. So mood is a big one. Our glucose levels, if we think about really what glucose is again, it's that energy source, right? And so it's affecting our our day-to-day energy levels. And so especially when we have what's called high glycemic variability, so those swings in our glucose, those up and down movement tend to be most correlated with both impaired energy levels and disrupted mood. So a lot of times that leads to what's called reactive hypoglycemia. So we tend to eat something maybe a little bit more sugary or a little bit more uh, out of line with our plan than we might normally do. And it can lead to a big glucose spike. And then our body tends to overcorrect and it can lead to a glucose dip afterwards. And that's a lot of times where we experience that kind of like brain fog, hanger, you know, crankiness, the desire to take a little siesta. That's usually that kind of hypoglycemia after a spike. And so that, of course, is going to impact our our energy levels, our mood. But we also know that that glycemic variability, so that kind of roller coaster glucose chart, leads to feelings of anxiety in people. And that's because your energy is fluctuating all day. You know, you can go from feeling jittery when your glucose is high to kind of lethargic and brain fog when your energy is low. And what we see for a lot of people is that when we can start to just stabilize that a little bit, and it doesn't mean your glucose has to be flat. You know, that's another myth is that we have to like see no movement in our glucose levels, but we're really looking for kind of that healthy amount of fluctuations. Then people feel better. They just feel more stable. Not only are they able to kind of perform better, so cognitively or physically, they also have that more stable mood and kind of less feelings of that unexplained anxiety that you can sometimes get. I don't drink. So I'm curious, how does alcohol affect glucose? Yeah. So alcohol is an interesting one where it seems like people's threshold for when the negative effect starts to kick in is also personalized. So like we see with a lot of things, somebody can have one glass of alcohol and assuming it's kind of a low sugar alcohol, so maybe a dry wine or a liquor, what we tend to see is that glucose is stable or low when you consume it because your body is prioritizing metabolizing the alcohol and not dealing with anything else. But then what we see is kind of like a delayed effect. So usually it'll be kind of in the middle of the night if you were drinking in the evening or into the next morning that glucose levels are higher than baseline. And for some people, they see this effect with just one glass, where for other people, you know, it maybe it's three glasses, where's the threshold where they start to see glucose levels rise the next day. I mean, essentially, that's because, you know, the body has now reprioritized. It's like, I must metabolize this toxin first, and then I'll figure out, you know, regular glucose homeostasis after that. But you've kind of shifted the priorities internally. And so it does kind of depend on the threshold for the individual. I noticed that with stress too, like first with exercise in the morning, if I did my workout in the morning, my glucose was tended to be lower and more steady throughout the day. I'm curious about the process there. And the second thing I noticed was I remember once I got an email that was, I forget what it was about, but it was like stress inducing. And oh my gosh, my blood glucose like went like exercise. It was like I did a HIIT workout for one millisecond when I read it. And I saw the impact and I was like, oh, wow, that that cortisol dump, really interesting what it did to my glucose. 
Yeah, it's pretty powerful to actually see that stress impact with the data. You know, for a lot of people, it's hard to quantify exactly what impact stress is having. Mm -hmm. So anytime we can measure it a little bit more objectively, it helps really build that awareness component to the different aspects of your life that are really actually triggering that stress response. Starting with that one, you know, what's happening, of course, is that cortisol reaction. So those acute, acutely stressful moments, which can come from pretty much anything these days can lead to that actual spike in glucose levels. And for a lot of people who eat fairly well, their highest glucose levels of the day will be from stressful moments. You know, that's the thing that they're realizing is maybe holding them back from the health goals they're trying to reach is really getting stress under control. And what we see with chronic stress, so if somebody kind of has that low hum of cortisol all the time, we see that overnight glucose values and fasted glucose values in the morning tend to be kind of just always a little higher than normal. And essentially what's happening there is in the fasted state, your body's pumping out that extra glucose kind of all the time. So it's not really a spike, but it's higher than baseline levels, especially when fasted. Similarly with sleep, sleep is essentially kind of like a, a stressor on your body. So either not enough quantity of sleep or poor quality of sleep can really impact glucose levels the next day, kind of like that chronic stress. It's estimated that actually you can have 40% less insulin sensitivity. So we're less sensitive to that communication signal after just one bad night of sleep. And so it's a pretty dramatic effect. Just had a baby. That's I know. I know. <laughs> I haven't worn it in the last little bit. Good. I'll I'll bring it back once my rested state. I don't feel that tired, but you know, it's like definitely more disturbed sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it's, you know, there's, if you could think about glucose management, there are four core pillars. So like four legs of a chair, you really need all of them in order to kind of get everything in an optimal level. And then there's, of course, other smaller factors. And that's really like nutrition, physical activity or physical fitness and stress and sleep. And so I try to get people to think about all of those as an equally important part of the picture. A lot of people just want to think about, or, you know, at first you think about carbohydrates and sugar, but that's even just one element of nutrition, which is just one element of those pillars. But, you know, exercise or physical fitness, as you were saying, is a key component as well. So our glucose can respond differently to exercise in the moment. We might sometimes see that glucose spike, like you were saying, to your HIIT workout. And a lot of that is just supply and demand of energy in the moment. So if you're doing something really intense, so HIIT workout, or you're sprinting, or you know, you're doing some sort of high-intensity activity then you are demanding more energy for your body than you have in circulation at that moment. So your body kind of breaks down some of that stored glucose to supply and fuel the energy you know, you're demanding of it. So this is not necessarily a bad glucose spike because you're using that energy right away. There's a reason we're releasing it because your body needs it. So that's perfectly fine and healthy, whereas more like steady state exercise, you might not see that glucose spike and that's also okay. But what we do know is the long-term benefits or even just, you know, short-term as in within that 24 hours from exercise is one of the most impactful tools that we have in our metabolic health toolbox. So really 
any type of movement, any type of exercise helps us increase that insulin sensitivity. So it just makes our cells more sensitive to this signal from insulin. So we don't need as much insulin to do the same amount of effect. And so that's really good for that long-term metabolic health. And we also know that strength training or building up that lean body mass in particular is also helpful because most of our circulating glucose goes to our skeletal muscles. So about like 80% of that circulating glucose gets picked up by the skeletal muscle. And it's also where glycogen can be stored. So glycogen is kind of that storage form of glucose, and we can only put it in the liver or the skeletal muscles. And we don't want our liver to get any bigger than it is. There's only so much space there. But the more lean body mass we have, the more skeletal muscle mass we have, essentially the more uh, security that we have for glucose to go. So if we stimulate our muscles, that helps soak it up. But then if we also build more muscle, that helps have a place for that glucose to go. So it's a little bit like an investment portfolio for your kind of your metabolic health. That's interesting. I was reading Peter Atia, the doctor's new book uh, on longevity, and he was saying that there is nothing in the data that even close to compares to the benefit of putting on lean muscle mass. Like it just shows you. I remember in, I took a course in college called Psych of Aging, and one of the principles of aging is we think that it's like harder to put on muscle as you age, but that was it's not actually true. You know, I remember seeing a picture of, it went kind of viral on Instagram, I'm sure you did too, but it was a picture of two, I think they were like 80-year-old women. And one was like jacked and like fit and had tons of vitality and the other one did not, like had, you know, had the classic perm, but, you know, was not vital. And I think because that, we're talking about all the cultural narratives and messages that were sent there's not been an incredible message of how important movement is. And like before we just did that because it required for survival. You like went out and gathered berries and you hiked and you lifted things and you built things and you moved things and you carried your kid everywhere in a little sling or whatever it's called. But you know, now we don't tend to do that, which what I find I've been rucking, which I don't know if you've heard of rucking. Yeah, you have. Yeah. Yeah, and I had Michael Easter on the podcast who wrote The Comfort Crisis, and he suggested rucking. And in the book, when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, man, this is actually an interesting idea. I'd had a weighted vest before, but I got a go ruck pack, and I will throw, there's a 30 and a 20 in it, so I'll throw, depending on what I'm doing, a 30 or 50 pounds, and I'll just go walk hills and enjoy it, listen to a podcast, listen to a book. And it's not that like he was talking about the propensity to get injured via running versus being injured by walking. And if you can put weight on not your body, but on a backpack and walk with it, you're getting a strength training exercise and an endurance exercise. Like this is a brilliant idea. So now I'll be like walk with Jasper and have a weighted pack on and push him, And it just, it's been a pretty great way to get in the fitness. Yeah, I love it. And I think Peter Tia mentions it in his book as well, Wrecking. It seems yeah. to be also a, a kind of a, a trendy item right now, but I love it. I'm I'm all for it. It is cool. And the power of muscle, like you're saying, this is purely anecdotal, but there is some research to indicate this. But what we have found, you know, working with patients and clients is 
the number one differentiator of what we see for women who are more successful through menopause specifically. We, we get a lot of women who come because what they were doing before menopause is no longer working after menopause. Mm, These major hormonal changes have a big impact on your metabolic health. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But the women we see who have the most success in that transition are those who have always prioritized strength training and have a good amount of lean body mass on them. So having the body mass helps regulate the glucose and, or sorry, insulin, glucose, and also the uh, hormonal fluctuation that occurs? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot of times, yeah, what we see, because you you can actually even see glucose fluctuations for women just in their regular menstrual cycle. So those changes in hormones throughout the regular monthly cycle are going to impact how insulin sensitive you are, you know, how much glucose you're putting out. Wow. So how you eat would change. Yeah, it's wow. it's pretty wild. And then you see that effect just basically 10x into a permanent level when a woman goes through menopause. So they are much less insulin sensitive once men, you know, they're postmenopausal because the hormones that really help us be more insulin sensitive are now really, really low for postmenopausal women. And so inherently for most women, that does mean that we kind of have to adjust how we eat to adjust to this new physiology, essentially. But having again, yeah, that muscle mass makes your ability to be flexible just a little bit more robust. You know, it's again, it's that insurance policy where you can potentially eat a little bit more flexible and remain insulin sensitive because you have that muscle mass to kind of protect you metabolically. I'm curious, why is it, because I, I would imagine men get type 2 diabetes more than women. Is that fair to say? Or is it actually pretty split? Yeah, I don't know what the most recent split is, but I believe it's usually close to 50-50, actually. Uh, I was going to say, because of that predisposition that occurs through menopause, I'm surprised that it isn't actually skewed. But perhaps um, women have more efficiencies in other areas. I know from also the research on cardiovascular disease was not done in women until like the 90s, which is not shocking. Yeah, there's some flaws in, um, so you know, much. women have been excluded from a lot of research because our menstrual cycle is a uncontrollable variable and we wouldn't want bad data. So we wouldn't want to throw that into <laughs> the double blind placebo yeah. controlled. It's, I know I have friends who do training and like are physiologists and stuff and they, they talk about how there is actually unique training that needs to occur that accommodates a uh, woman's cycle. And how we just have bulldozed right past that up until now. And, you know, it's so obvious. And yet, you know, here we are. It is obvious when you think about it. Like, it's a truly a physiological change. Like, the amount of estrogen fluctuation that happens just in that one month is crazy. It's, you know, it's to a degree that. Well, you never experience with testosterone fluctuation. So, of course, it's going to imply, you know, different outcomes and different needs and different adjustments that might need to be made, especially at the competitive level. Like competitive athletes are looking at this, they're tracking their cycle, they're adjusting to it. If you're just kind of like a, you know, weekend warrior, you probably don't need to like overly complicate your training routine from this, but it will have an impact on kind of your, your insulin sensitivity and your glucose levels. And for a lot of people, just knowing that and seeing that is empowering in and of itself. It's, it's, 
makes it seem less like you're doing something wrong or like, you know, you're craving food and something's wrong with you. It's more like this is just objectively the physiology. And I think just having that knowledge really helps people then kind of make better decisions during those times as well. I'm curious for people listening who maybe a continuous glucose monitor is not an option for whatever reason, what are some other things they can do? And yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. So when it comes to just awareness and tracking, what I always recommend for everybody is at a minimum, get some basic labs once a year. There are so many people who aren't taking advantage of just kind of like those annual labs, especially, you know, in the US, if you have any insurance, it should cover like a preventative annual visit, which comes with labs. So track those, monitor those, ask for, you know, make sure you're getting a fasted glucose level, hemoglobin A1C, at least a basic lipid panel, pay most attention to the triglycerides and HDL, as you were mentioning. And look at those things. See how they change over time. Trends are what is really important. Just one kind of outlier out of the the normal lab value is not as important as kind of seeing how things are changing and what that trajectory is. Um, So that's the best first place to start. And then if you want kind of the next level of tracking, those glucometers or glucose meters, you can order on Amazon, get it at CVS. They're really cheap. And that's a good way if you kind of want to spot check glucose a little bit more often. But it's not quite as robust as the information you'll get from a CGM, but you're still going to learn a lot from that. And then really when it comes to lifestyle changes, I always recommend people to, you know, don't major in the minors, still prioritize the fundamentals. So When it comes to nutrition, think about nutrient density. So as close to that whole food state as possible, think about maximizing the amount of nutrients per bite and the amount of satiety per bite. So that helps you feel like you're not going to overeat and you're getting as much nutrition as possible. You know, prioritize movement, prioritize building that lean body mass, think about your sleep and really monitor stress levels overall. Those sound simple. I know they're not simple. Like that's already a lot to focus on. But if you're kind of, you know, not sure where to start, it's always like focus on those fundamentals and just get some annual labs and kind of track it from there. That's great. Well, this certainly lived up to the sense I had. And I really had a desire just from our first conversation to bring you on and explore your expertise and give people some simple tips and ideas of how to begin to or continue to deepen their awareness and knowledge of their bodies. And to me, this has become, I'm 44 now, so this has become increasingly important just to maintain my metabolic health, to actually make it better, to improve it, and to really commit to it. Because as much as my life has been spent exploring human relationships and interpersonal, I've always had a really deep fascination for fitness and health and food. And that's my own personal journey of wanting to understand it for my challenges, but also because I recognize that when I'm aware of something and I'm experiencing vitality and responsibility, I feel good. Like there, you just feel good. And when you're in that state, it's so much easier to create things. It's easier to be in healthy relationships because you feel good about yourself, you know? And so Thank you so much for coming on the pod and taking the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Honored to be here. And for the people listening, where can they find out more about you and also NutriSense? 
Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Kara Collier One, or um, you can follow NutriSense on all social media platforms. So NutriSense.io, that's also our website, NutriSense.io. You can follow our blog content, our newsletters, but that's also where you would go if you wanted to sign up and kind of explore a CGM for yourself. Yeah, the Instagram is really interesting to follow the food tests and the, the different social media people who have tested how their glucose response. I, I was like, oh man, this is interesting. I got to try some of these. So yeah, thanks so much, Kara. We'll make sure that we put the links in the show notes. Appreciate your time. 